Welcome to the Purdue Basketball Podcast. I'm Elliot Bloom, joined by the Hall of Famer. Uh, Larry Clisby joins us down from Florida. And today on episode 65 of the podcast, we welcome in former player, member of the radio team, Ralph Taylor, joins us from his home in Indianapolis. Ralph, uh, thanks for taking some time here to join us on the podcast. Well, my pleasure. You indicated this is podcast 65. That also happens to be uh, the year I graduated from Indianapolis-Washington High School, 1965, so it should be a good day. There we go. That works out perfect. A, a great tie-in. Well, last uh, podcast we had outgoing senior Tommy Luce uh, joined us, and we didn't realize, but him and Cliz share the same birthday. So wow. the, uh, the, <laughs> the string of, uh, of coincidences is at two here on the podcast, so <laughs> we'll try well, to keep— I graduated. I graduated in 1965, too. Well, there we go. I mean, everything is tying together. It couldn't work out more perfect for us. So <laughs> all these ties, that's great. So, Ralph, um, you know, we, we, we talked to a lot of former players and a lot of Boilermakers, and, uh, and one thing we're always curious of is uh, kind of their childhood and, and when they kind of fell in love with the game of basketball. Um, you alluded to the fact that you grew up in Indianapolis, went to Washington High School, um, you know, what was, uh, what was life like, uh, for Ralph Taylor growing up in Indianapolis? Well, growing up as a kid, my, uh, first love was baseball. Uh, everybody in the house was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan and I hated the Yankees. And <laughs> so baseball, I loved first and basketball, I would watch, uh, the great Christmas Addicts teams on television, but really hadn't thought that much about playing basketball. And, uh, finally I started playing and it was kind of a, transition from being a fat, clumsy kid in sixth grade where I scored a total of four points that year. Uh, all four points were scored on the other team's basket, so my knowledge at that time was not really that good. <laughs> that you, but might I, be the, you might be the first player. Um, well, there, there are other let – me, let me preface this. There are a lot of players who have probably done that in their childhood. You're one of the few that is man enough to admit it. Let's put it that way. I have no, I have no shame in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> Oh wow! So what? So how good a baseball player were you? Uh, I was decent. I played uh, first base, and uh, actually, it was really softball in our uh, in the IPS athletic system. I played first base, and uh, then gradually I started beginning to play basketball. There was a, an actual dust bowl court that was just literally playing on the hard dirt that. Uh, you know, you go home, you have dust all over you. Yeah. The military Park, which is now White River State Park. Yeah. So I continued to improve my game. Had a great coach in uh, Clifford Robinson, who was also uh, the coach of the great George McGinnis and Marv Winkler, two guys who played in the NBA. Yeah, absolutely. So at, when you took up basketball, how long until you started to be a little bit more proficient in that? Uh, the transition happened after the, after the sixth grade. That's when things really began to click, and uh, we had by a eighth, really by eighth grade, he was all, he was he was all pro by eighth grade. <laughs> oh, absolutely, clear. <laughs> <laughs> two years took him two years. Yeah. but you know, I think uh, watching the Attics teams, and also I had a cousin who played at Charlotte in the uh, late fifties. So that that was kind of like my motivation to really get good because I realized you could get on television. And your name could also get in the newspaper if you're any good at all. So I took that as a, uh, a sign to really try to improve my game. And by the time I left uh, school five in the eighth grade, 
I've been recruited by uh, Jumpin' Johnny Wilson, the late great uh, Jumpin' Johnny Wilson, who uh, was Indiana All-Star, Mr. Basketball, played at Anson College, played with the Harlem Globetrotters. He tried to recruit me from Wood High School. Uh, Bill Garrett, the late Bill Garrett, who was the first African-American player at IU, was coaching at Attics. He uh, tried to recruit me to come to Attics. And then, of course, Jerry Oliver uh, from Washington came over to recruit me. And But I always thought I was going to go to Christmas Attics because at that time in IPS, you could go to a high school that was in, uh, if it were in walking distance, closer walking distance, than the school you're going to be assigned to, or if the book rental was cheaper, or if you had a relative, if you had any of those three, you go to the high school you wanted to as opposed to the one that uh, you were assigned to. Oh. All three of those things were in my favor to go to Christmas Attics, but as my lifelong dream was to wear the green and gold of Christmas Attics, and didn't work out for some certain reason. I got sent to Washington, and you know, in the end, things have really working out. Well, I was just wondering, you were bringing up all those, you started talking about recruiting, and I thought, well, Ralph's jumped ahead in the conversation here to his college recruiting. I didn't realize that, um, I mean, let's face it, you know, recruiting at the high school level goes on, and, and you know, uh, some some of it goes on to this day. Um, but I didn't realize all those different exemptions, so to speak. Um, so that had to be a pretty uh, wild scene. You have young kids, seven, you know, eighth graders, who really are kind of getting recruited to go to these high schools. Was that, I mean, it had to be fairly commonplace, you're, you're saying, back in those days then? Well, I'm not sure how commonplace it was, but I know that uh, when I asked, well, how can I go to addicts, and Bill Garrett told me if I had any of those three things I just uh, mentioned, okay, that wouldn't be a problem. But then also, if you look at a lot of the uh, great uh, Christmas addicts teams and the great Shrubbers teams from the 50s, a lot of those guys did not live in the school district in which they had been assigned to go to. Okay. So okay. It was kind of common. It just wasn't broadcast that loudly. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's still very, very interesting. And um, and so basketball obviously has been king in this state and, and for a long time and, and Indianapolis, a hotbed of that. Um, so you were pretty well aware, as you made reference to, that you know, those guys on those teams were looked up to as, uh, you know, local celebrities, so to speak. That, that, is that, you think that made a difference in pushing you towards basketball? Oh, absolutely, because, you know, I grew up watching uh, Oscar Robertson, uh, Willie Merriweather, who came to Purdue, uh, Laverne Benson, Edgar Searcy, uh, Jerry Williams, Paul Crane, uh, watching the Van Arsdale twins, and, uh, you know, living where I lived, which is where the IUP campus is now located, one of the guys that lived across the street from me was a member of the 56 Christmas Act State Championship team, so I looked up to him. Oh, wow. And then uh, a couple blocks down was a guy by the name of Eddie Williams, who was an Indiana All-Star alternate, and he played at Washington. So there was a lot of great talent around me, and those were guys I looked up to. And uh, so, yeah, it was quite a hotbed of great basketball talent. Wow, that's really, really cool. So – as you as you get to, uh, do you remember uh, your first high school game that you attended? First high school game I attended, I was uh, ten years old, and my cousin, who was a Christmas Attic student, took me to watch uh, Christmas Attics play in a doubleheader. Uh, at that time, it was called uh, Butler Field House, and there were over fourteen thousand people there. And Christmas Attics played Tech, and I'll never forget it. Wow! Who was on that Tech team? Uh, it was uh, Eddie Hannon, uh, Harold Boyd, 
And, of course, they're going up against, uh, you know, the great X teams, Edgar Searcy, Bill Brown, Stanford Patton, Oscar Robertson, and those guys. Wow, that is incredible. Very cool, very cool. Um, There's a great book written by uh, Randy Roberts, Purdue professor, on uh, the Crispus Attucks teams and uh, with uh, with Oscar and those guys. And it's a uh, it's a really cool book. It gives a good sense of uh, of the history and the the importance of that team in the city at that time. And so you make your decision to go to Washington High School, and um, that's a, a high school that. Purdue basketball is pretty familiar with because every year that the Big Ten tournament is in Indianapolis, uh, Jack Owens, former assistant coach, who's now the head coach over Miami of Ohio, um, went to school at Washington. And so we would always look for a place to go have our shoot around uh, the day of the, you know, our Big Ten tournament games. And the first year we were going down there when when Coach Owens was on staff, um, I asked the guys, I said, where do you guys want to go shoot? And usually on a on a game day like that, you want to you, you want it to be somewhere pretty close, and uh, so you can kind of get in and out. You don't spend a lot of time on the bus. And of course, Washington's just right down the street in the Big Ten tournament. We always stay downtown there, usually at the Hilton, which is the hotel the Big Ten assigns us. And uh, right. it was always very convenient for us to go over to Washington, and they were great because they knew Coach Owens real well. And so we would just show up and go right in the back door and go shoot. And we always used to we always used to uh, kid them a little bit because on the wall there there's all there's all those uh, jerseys with the kind of their icons over the years and we never saw his name so we always would make fun of him a little bit for that although he was a really really good player but uh yeah, some, jack, jack banner with his name should be on the wall yeah it ju- well it just went up it went up after he left uh, he left purdue here which we're pretty thankful for because he would have never let us forget about it but uh that's true but there are some big time names you know in uh in that program and did it have did Washington have kind of the power and the clout that you know it, it did kind of in its heyday yes and and it was interesting because uh Christmas Addicts was a dominant team in the 50s but and you had great tech cathedral and Charlotte teams broadcast teams but the dominant school was Christmas Addicts and then it was interesting when they started shifting school boundaries all at once the power shift left Christmas Addicts, and seemingly after the Van Arsdale twins graduated from Manual in 61, yeah. uh, Washington High School became the basketball power, and also became football power as well, and uh, actually, uh, Channel 8 WISHTV in the 19s, I think it's the mid-70s, uh, Mike Ahern, they had done a documentary on the rise of Washington High School as an athletic power in the 1960s. So oh, Washington wow. became the dominant power. Uh, we won. We were the first uh, IPS school to win three straight city championships wow. from 62 to 65. That was with my longtime friend and brother from another mother, Billy Keller. Uh, yeah. We led Washington three straight city championship teams. And if you include our city championship team as freshmen, uh, we never lost a city championship. Wow. Now, those city championships, for those that are, are fans listening that don't know, um, that's a big deal. That's uh, that's bragging rights for the, for the next year, right? I mean, you win that, Absolutely. and then, yeah, yeah, you see guys out and about in the next 300-plus days out of the year, and you get to talk, and they, got, they have to listen, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. and we did a lot of talking. <laughs> 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 that is that is great. I I didn't know about that documentary, but Mike Ahern, obviously the great longtime uh, news anchor at uh, at Wish TV down there, 
Um, anybody who grew up in central Indiana remembers him. And, um, um, yeah, that's, that's a really, really cool. I knew that they were the powerhouse and I'm glad you kind of gave us some dates to go along with that and kind of put things in perspective. Um, so it was interesting because, uh, from, well, we won three state city championships. So we won the state championship, but then coming right behind us to continue that dynasty was the powerhouse on McGinnis and Downing. Yeah, and and obviously oh, yeah. George McGinnis goes on the career at Indiana, and then with the Indiana Pacers, and really, uh, really was part of that group that put the Pacers on the map and uh, allowed them to dominate the ABA for those years. Cliz, you remember? Uh, well, you were down in Kentucky during the, that time. No, but I remember. I remember the names. Yeah, I, I never had a chance to go see him play, but you know. Indiana and Kentucky basketball at that time was everything. Yes. And and when the two uh, when the two uh, got together, you know it meant something. And so, so yeah, we knew we knew all the guys. And you know, I I I was still rooting for Kentucky teams then because I hadn't moved to Indiana yet. But I got I got indoctrinated to their their style apply pretty quickly and of course I had a chance to meet all those guys and actually uh, Purdue had some guys that were there and pretty good too so yeah and, Ralph, so. well and 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 so Ralph you when you you get to Washington you start playing um you know how how long before you were a, a regular on the on the on the hardwood were did you have a time as a freshman where you were Doing more watching than playing, or did you get inserted right away, or how did the, how'd your freshman year work out? Well, freshman year, uh, Billy and I, we both started. Billy Kelly and I, we both started. And then uh, toward the end of the season, uh, we both got moved up to the uh, JV team. And the varsity that year was the, uh, they had the best team in the history of the school at that time. Wow. Jerry uh, Oliver said he thought about bringing us up to the varsity, but with the team he had he thought we'd be better served just playing on jv you know that's so then, uh, that's that says how good they are you and billy keller and you guys uh you get you get slowly brought up during your career that just tells you the talent that that team had and you know uh to be honest i think in in that particular era you we're talking 61 62 very few freshmen were starting on varsity yeah yeah uh, which has really changed in today's game. You know, a lot of freshmen start on the varsity. So talk us through uh, talk us through those years at Washington. You know, you I'm sure as you get older, you play more. Um, as you alluded to, you guys are winning a lot. Um, you know that that had to be uh, had to be some really fun years. Well, really fun years. Uh, just take you to our freshman year. We're playing city in the city tournament as freshmen in the city tournament. And we're uh, trailing Shelvage 19 to 4 at halftime. And we wind up beating Shelvage 24 to 23. So it was a really wow. high scoring game. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's so we went on to win the city championship. And then uh, our sophomore year, uh, we had two lettermen that came back on the team. So Billy and I got moved up to the varsity. I started, Billy started. And we finished 19 to 4. And we won Washington's first city championship since. 1947 when uh, Washington had the great buckshot O'Brien and George Theofanis. Then we got beat in the uh, sectional by someone you, well, you might not know, but Clay, I'm sure will remember 
a guy by the name of Louis Dampier beat us on a last-second 20-foot jump shot, and we got defeated in the section of 72 to 70. Yeah, I know that name, Louis Dampier. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Dampier was a good player, too. And I still have nightmares of that shot from the corner. Oh, <laughs> it, uh, it, hey, anytime you get beat. Was he your man? Was he your man? No, no, no. He was a guard. I was a, I was a, a center. <laughs> yeah. I, I was playing center. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that he said, I can I can cover him all, but I'm not covering him. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, he was deadly. And then, you know, we moved to our junior year, and uh, Billy had set out part of the first year. He had knee surgery. And we had a really great team, and it was really the best team I played on in Washington. And we had like five or six guys averaging double figures. And generally, as far as we might play three fourths of the game, we wouldn't play the whole game. We go uh, 21 and two. We ended our season 21 and two. And then the uh, sectional, uh, we we beat Wood by 30 points. And they had the great Greg Norrinson, who was like seven foot. Couple other guys who were six eight. Our tall stars like six three. All right, so we were playing Wood in the uh, semifinals of the section of Southport, and I uh, damaged my knee, and I wound up with a torn cartilage. So I did not play in the uh, championship game that evening against Howell. So we got beat by thirteen points, uh, and in the opening game of the season, we played Howell and beat them by twenty. But I didn't get to play. Uh, we had two other guys who were a little bit on the weather. So we got beaten. I'll never forget sitting on the bench watching watching the end of the game and the house section released balloons in the air. And I thought, well, that ends my dream of winning the state championship. And because, uh, like I said, we had five or six guys averaging double figures. And then fast forward to my senior year, and the only two lettermen are myself and Billy. And we really did, it's kind of like an unknown season. Actually, a lot like. I season at Purdue uh, last year with Carson and Ryan Klein. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people really didn't know what would happen. But uh, we wound up really coming together. We added a uh, starter by the name of Marv Winkler, went on to become Indiana All-Star in 66, went to southwest Louisiana, and then played with the Milwaukee Bucks. So we had three guys averaging double figures, myself, Billy, and Marvin. And we went on to win state championship, and we thought if we got out of the sectional, we really have a good chance of winning. So that year, uh, Indiana had a very bad snowstorm. So the sectionals were, sectional championship games were postponed in a lot of places until uh, the following Monday evening. Mm. So we played uh, Manuel at a sold-out crowd of Southport High School, and uh, we defeated Manuel to win the uh, sectional, Washington's first sectional win since, like, 1948. Wow. And we just steamrolled opponents and get to the championship uh, final four. And Gary Roosevelt was a heavy favorite to uh, win. And we were like, we were ranked like fourth in the state. So we were picked after Roosevelt to win it. Well, Roosevelt gets defeated in the afternoon game by Princeton in an upset. Wow. And then we wind up beating uh, Brookville. Then in the, uh, I'm sorry, we wind up beating Princeton in the afternoon game. Then we played Fort Wayne North in the uh, championship game, and we wound up uh, beating Fort Wayne North. We trailed until we threw our full-court press on them, and then that brought us back to victory. And uh, my three years of Washington, Jerry Oliver had installed a uh, full-court press, much like the press that Johnny Woodner utilized at UCLA during that time. Okay. And, and we won so many games using that full-court press that teams just really – 
did not know how to handle the press. And watching college basketball today, one of the things I realized is that teams still do the wrong thing when they get pressed. That is, the guy that's receiving the ball automatically goes to the corner, gets the ball, gets double teamed, and usually throws the ball away. Right. Some things have not changed. <laughs> right, yeah. So that was 1965? Yes. So 1965 state champs, and that is – that I knew I knew you were on that team, and I didn't know the whole backstory. And it's interesting that uh, that you and Billy um, kind of came in as you know one of those years where maybe not ex- as high expectations. But I think that goes to show you. And you made a good point um, of our team last year with Klein and Eifert, and then Carson leading the way as a junior. Um, you made a good point in the fact that basketball, unlike maybe some other sports, is so chemistry driven. And it's so uh, you can make up such a margin if you lack in talent, you can make up for that margin in your chemistry. And uh, yeah, and and just so you guys obviously had it with that in that team. And I think that's one of the things that makes basketball such a unique and cool sport. It really is. And I think, uh, you know, the year before we had a really tight group because, you know, one of the guys we were uh, grade school teammates. But it was something about 65 team. Well, I can't quite figure it out because we were one of the shortest teams ever to win a state championship. I played center. Billy was a 5'10 uh, guard. Eddie Bott was a 6-foot guard. And Eddie weighed maybe 145 pounds. Our two wing guys, two forwards, were Marty Winkler was 5'11 and Mark Lassen 6'2 and a half. Wow. And no time in our three years playing at Washington did we ever have anybody on the team taller than 6'3". Wow, that isn't well. And I've always heard those stories that you played center, and then when I got to know you a little bit and were and and started to be around you a little bit more, I thought, no way, Ralph played center because, yeah, you you just think of centers and you think, okay, even though even back in those days, you're going to have at least guys that are six five, six six. But yeah, you were playing center, and I heard now I've heard from multiple people, Ralph, that you could jump out of the gym. I heard you had serious hops. Well, I had, a, I had a nice vertical, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, I think the thing of it is, I think I never really thought about the height differential mm-hmm. because I think when you start thinking about, you know, your height differential, you're thinking, well, I'm not good enough to beat this guy, but I always prided myself. Well, actually the whole team, we were, we were so well fundamentally taught. And one of the first things we were taught was how to play defense and more importantly, how to block out and rebounding mm-hmm. and uh in three years we were out rebounded maybe three times wow and that was going against teams like uh cathedral they had a front line that averaged my junior year their front line averaged six six uh with uh front line my junior year and senior year averaged about six seven so we played against a lot of tall players but i think it was one of those psychological things because People would look at me saying, well, he's a 6'2 center. And then they look at Billy saying, well, he's a 5'10 slow guard. No way they're going to beat us. Yeah. And by the time the game was over, they realized they had underestimated us. So we had that surprise element to us because teams would just look at us and think, no way in the world they're going to beat us. So talk us through, um, you know, you get to be uh, upperclassman, senior, you win the state championship. Talk us through then the next phase of your life and your basketball career um, and talk us through how you ended up in West Lafayette. Well, Billy and I both were selected to the end all-star team. Billy was selected Mr. Basketball. I was selected uh, number three, and that was during the time where uh, sports writers voted you in. Mm-hmm. And we 
play in the Indiana Kentucky All Star game, we got beat twice. The second loss happened. Uh, that that was the only year they had an experimental rule, which was you could stay in the game after you fouled out, but if you made a foul, then if you committed a foul, that team got to shoot free throws. Well, the player for Kentucky who fouled out, and normally had he fouled out with five fouls, he fouls out and he scores like. Ten more points, and we get beat by three. Oh, wow! <laughs> and then with uh, selecting Purdue, uh, I think uh, the factor for both Billy and I going to Purdue was late Bob King, mm-hmm. who was so instrumental in recruiting so many players to Purdue. He was like for all of us who were recruited by him. He was like the godfather or the father or the father figure for so yeah. many of us. Yeah, and, uh, he told on Purdue. So uh, both Billy and I felt very comfortable coming to Purdue. And so, so talk us through when you arrive as a freshman. Um, you know, what was uh, what was it like for you personally, and then what was Purdue like in those days? Well, for me personally, it was uh, like I'm at college, so I wasn't quite sure if it was a big deal or not. I, you know, Washington High School had a fairly large size enrollment. Yeah. Well, the the size did not bother me. Uh, the one shocking thing was uh, twenty five thousand uh, run roughly 25,000 students at that time. Uh, there were probably a total of, uh, had to have been under 80 black students out of 25,000 at that time. Mm, wow. Wow. So for myself coming from an integrated school, yeah, that was, I mean, it wasn't a big deal because I was used to that because Washington's African-American enrollment was probably 13% okay. out of student body. But for individuals like, uh, Leroy Keyes, a great football player, Ern Gilly, my great roommate, and others who came from either the segregated South or the de facto segregated North, that, that was an adjustment. I can uh, imagine, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, Herman would tell me stories of growing up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, how uh, the black schools might get maybe a paragraph. Then he talked about the difference in coverage. And Herman was one of the best players ever in the history of Purdue. Uh, and then uh, our freshman team, we had a really good freshman team, myself, Billy Keller, uh, Rick Snyder, who was Mr. Basketball from Lyle, uh, Gary Bancroft, a six-guy uh, kid out of Michigan who jumped out of the gym. And he taught me how to dunk uh, from a standing uh, jump. Wow. And Terry's there. And so we were good enough that – but you didn't play other teams. We only played uh, fraternities and intramural teams at Purdue. And we were so good and beat, and we would beat teams so bad that the student body a lot of times would boo us because <laughs> we were telling the other teams so bad. And then we had the uh, freshman varsity game. I'll never forget, uh, George King told Dave Tony, under no circumstances were we to play uh, any switching man-to-man defense. We could not switch. <laughs> they were afraid of you guys, right? Well, they were afraid of us, and this was George King's first year at Purdue. Oh, okay. Team was a little lacking a little bit in firepower outside of Dave Shellhouse, who could light it up. Yeah, but the offense was built on Shellhouse coming off screens. So since we could not switch, Dave lit us up for about thirty. And the freshman varsity game, the varsity beat us by like five points. But had we been able to switch, we would have beat the varsity. Wow! And in those days, obviously, freshmen had their own team; they weren't eligible to play with the varsity. So those guys that came in basically played three years with varsity. Um, right, and uh, now you mentioned Coach Tony. Um, I was fortunate enough to meet him um, 
when he was uh, a few, I would say probably 10, 12 years ago, he occasionally would stop by Mackey and come by the offices and talk and got to know him a little bit, was a great guy. Um, so give me your thoughts. What was George King like as a coach? Well, uh, George was, uh, he was an offensive-minded coach. Mm-hmm. And uh, defense was kind of like, well, we, we'll play defense, but let's score points. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, he, he was a good coach, a good strategist, and uh, he was able, and I think a lot of it was Bob King and Joe Sexton, as well as Dave Tony, because we had a situation where we had three really outstanding players, two Two were uh, two of them were Herm Gaiman and Billy Keller. Yeah, and you know today we talk about role players and all that, but those two guys made the ultimate sacrifice. They they put aside their own individual game to make make way for Rick. Mm. Now I heard and, I I I've heard a story about Herm Gilliam coming here that I'm trying to remember who told me. I think Billy Packer told me this story. That he was going to go to Wake Forest, mm-hmm. and they had a situation where I don't know if they if they could take African Americans or maybe they had a one person limit or something like that. No, and they couldn't take him. They, okay, they yeah, couldn't but, take him. Yeah, and and Billy, I, Billy was associated with him. He might have been an assistant coach, and he called Bob King and said, "Look." I got a guy down here that if he can't get in the wake, he needs to go to Purdue. He's a really good player. And I rem- and his story said that Bob was like, well, we only got one spot left, and I don't, you know, we got to be able to see him. And, and Billy was like, no, 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 nobody's going to see him. Because I think Billy knew that if you saw him, everybody would go crazy over him. And so right. Billy said, you're only going to get him if we don't want him. And so it ended up happening where they couldn't take him. And he called Bob, and Bob said, okay, well, I guess we'll take him. And they kind of did it as a afterthought, like, okay, I guess. And then he shows up, and as you said, he's a really, really good player. you got to remember, he's coming from the segregated South where, you know, players from, black players from the segregated South are not getting any publicity. Mm-hmm. So that was a very unique situation for Herman, and I know it's a lot of people – Herman had modeled a lot of his game after Earl of Pearl Monroe. Oh, wow. The, the spin moves, the, uh, and, you know, people are in amazed, in amazement how LeBron James can do the come-from-behind block. Yeah. Well, Herman was doing that in the 60s. So oh, that wow. Was no big that, is, LeBron that. that is cool. That, uh, and I've and heard he could dunk, And he could dunk two balls at once. Wow. I've heard such great things about him, and I love these stories about these old guys, and especially when it kind of reaffirms some of the stories that I've heard. So it's great to hear you hear you talk so highly of him like that. Um, you 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 guys, as uh, you made reference to Rick on the team, Rick Mount, um, really some really good teams, and a lot going on in Purdue basketball at that time. Uh, we talked about George King, the coach, but also uh, the opening of Mackey Arena and. Uh, you were, you know, around for that. And, and what are your recollections of, of the opening of, of the arena? We obviously brought UCLA in with Coach Wooden. And what are your memories of that? Well, I remember uh, that was one of, the re- uh, one of the selling points when Bob King was recruiting Billy and me, and that was we're going to have this new arena. And opening night, it was unreal because 
here we were in this really what we thought was just outstanding new place to play because uh, when you when we have played in the old uh, Purdue Fieldhouse, like the transition from the Purdue Fieldhouse to uh, Mackey was like going from, uh, let's see, the Speedway Motel to the uh, <laughs> Crown Plaza. <laughs> it, it was just great, and the fan support was outstanding. And, you know, before we uh, moved into Mackey, basketball is just kind of like one of those afterthoughts that, you know, we'll – he will go to the games, but it's mostly a football school. And when Mackey opened up, you could gradually see the more acceptance of basketball, uh, greater crowd participation, because Mackey just generated so much energy. It was like the fans right on top of you. The noise would reverberate. And by the time we were seniors, uh, Mackey was a place that people did not want to play in because it was just such a uh, – intimidating crowd with the atmosphere it was just fantastic and i would say that you know the what we have now at purdue with tradition of mackey and the paint crew and all that we didn't have a paint crew back then but we had some of the loudest fans in the united states during the time i was at purdue and mackey wow that is that's awesome i'm calling cliz back here he just dropped off here ralph here we go again All right, Larry, you back with us? Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so that's really so. So Ralph, that's uh, that is amazing. With um, you know, I've heard now that one of the jokes that uh, we tell and or Coach Painter always says is that people come up to him and talk about that first game in Mackey, and they always say we always laugh because we we say that they're according to the people that have said they were there. There was one hundred fifty thousand people at that first game. And of course, obviously, there was only about fourteen thousand, uh, whoever could fit in the arena at the time. But that's always a, a pro- point of pride from a lot of Purdue people if they were in attendance in that first game in Mackey, and just the fact that it was UCLA, the program of the day, and and John Wooden, you know, and all the tie-ins there with uh, with uh, Coach Wooden being a Purdue grad and things of that nature. They obviously had the great uh, Luell Cinder um, at center, um, and do you remember? You know, UCLA, seeing them in person, they were the real deal. Did you did they make that impact when you saw them play in person? Oh, they were the real deal. And I had, you know, Lou Alcindor and I were the same high school class. So I've been following him in Street Smith basketball. But it was uh, Lou Alcindor, uh, uh, Lynn Shackelford. Uh, they, they were the real deal. Yeah, yeah. And Lou was about 7'3", with the afro probably 7'5", but he, he was the real deal. <laughs> And they had Lucius Allen, who was outstanding guard. So uh, they they were really loaded. That's the thing about those teams, those UCLA teams. I mean, one after the other on 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 those teams. I mean, just unbelievable talent. And that game was a really good game. Um, you know, went down to the wire, and they ended up winning that game. Uh, but then, um, you know, you guys face them again, uh, and you get to the Final Four. But talk about that season and just how it unfolded, and then. Um, one of the and arguably the most you know important and famous shot in Purdue history. Um, Rick Mount hits a shot in. Were you guys in Milwaukee when he hit that shot? We were in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, okay, Wisconsin there or and Madison, we're, right? And we're, yeah, and we're playing uh, Marquette in the uh, semifinal. Of course, oh. that in this particular year the NCAA tournament was all two weeks. Okay, wow. So they... we so we're playing Marquette. The game is tied with. Few seconds left. We had the ball. Uh, Rick gets the ball from, and he gets it. Shoots from the deep 
right hand corner. If, if you look facing the bats from the right hand corner, and it goes in nothing but net, and we beat Marquette by two. And they have the great Al McGuire, who's their coach. Yeah. And we beat them by two, and uh, so we move on to the uh, final four. And that the final four teams that year were uh, Drake, which had uh, Adolphus Pulliam and Willie McCarter. And Willie went on to star for the Los Angeles Lakers. And then there was uh, the North Carolina, and then, of course, Purdue and UCLA. And North Carolina had the first uh, African-American basketball player in ACC, and that was uh, great Charlie Scott, 6'6 guard mm-hmm. from uh, Carolina. And playing the Final Four, and we're staying at in the center Louisville, Kentucky. And during that time, the uh, NCAA championship game was played in the after- Saturday afternoon, and it was televised not by any national TV networks, but by TBS, which oh. was today's ESPN. Okay. And, and we play uh, North Carolina, and we're staying at the same hotel as the Tar Heels fans were. So the night before the game, they're just ratting us about what North Carolina's going to do to us, and we're just listening and uh we beat north carolina by about i don't know it was over 20 points come back to the hotel north carolina fans don't say anything to us <laughs> so then we uh meet ucla and unfortunately uh in the marquette game uh or maybe the minor Ohio game in the uh, ncaa semifinals at uh milwaukee at madison we lost chuck davis to a hairline fracture of his collarbone mm. and so we had to go with uh, Jerry Johnson and Frank Kaufman against Lou Alcindor, and that really was not a, a, a good match for us because they were getting up height as well as weight. Chuck at seven foot two forty basically could neutralize Alcindor because first meeting that we had early that season, Alcindor only, and I say only, but he only scored like twenty two points. Yeah, but that... without Chuck in there to defend him, it was just really a mismatch and. Kern Gillian was dealing with injury. Billy Keller was dealing with an injury. So we suffered our worst loss at the worst time. And we got beat by 20 in championship game. And Rick had probably one of the worst shooting nights he had during his Purdue career. He was just off and just a bad night. But I'll never forget coming back to campus. The, the outstanding reception we got from the fans is something I'll never forget when we came back. And, you know, that was also a time that uh, we – we actually had fans come out to the airport during the regular season. The first two years, we come back from a road trip, and the only people at the airport, Purdue Airport, to greet us would be our, maybe our roommate. And those lucky enough to have a girlfriend, they'd be there to pick us up. <laughs> but I remember beating Iowa on the road in January. We land at Purdue Airport, and we're looking out the window, and we're trying to figure out why all these people at the airport, who are they here to meet? We get off the Purdue Airport, it was a student body, it's probably over a thousand students. Wow. Waiting to greet us, coming back, uh, having beaten Iowa. And, you know, that year, we only lost uh, one game in the Big Ten. That was to uh, Ohio State, at Ohio State. And we were the first Purdue team to be undefeated in Mackey. Uh, yeah, we were undefeated at home. And uh, it was just, that year was the best, it was the best year, and it was like Purdue basketball had arrived. Uh, the crowds were tremendous. It was just, you know, out, it was just outstanding. Love that between the fans and students. Yeah, I'm looking at some numbers here. You know, the, it was a 68-69 season. You guys were 23-5 and overall, 13-1 and in the Big Ten. Um, yeah, your only loss was that you guys were eighth in the country and Ohio State was 16th in the country when you went over to Columbus, lost by three. But 
took care of business the rest of the way. Um, you referenced the North Carolina game. You beat those guys by 27. And by the way, they were fourth in the country. You guys were sixth in the country and beat them by 27 in the final four game in the semifinal, first semifinal game. Uh, you ended the regular season with Indiana at home and you, you guys beat those, you beat the Hoosiers by 48 or no, 44 points. That, oh yeah, that, that's the game we always enjoy. That is incredible. Do you remember that? Was you remember that finally kind of being the regular season finale? And I assume everybody, you have this momentum going into the postseason. And by the way, your arch rival comes in, you beat him by forty four in Mackey. Yeah, well, I remember that like it was yesterday. And you know, one of the interesting things about that was the fact that we played them a few games early in Bloomington. I think we win by one or two points. Uh, both teams scored in the 90s, so we get back in the last game of of our senior season for myself, Herman, Billy Keller, and Tess. And we're feeling a little melancholy about this, and uh, but we proceeded to go out and beat IU, like you said, 120 to 75 or whatever it was. 76, yeah, 120 to 76. Yeah. So I always remind my IU friends in Indy uh, what we did to IU, and that, that quickly shut them up. Yeah, that, that was a it really culminated a great regular season where we we were just really such a, a close-knit group, and that's something I always remember. And, you know, to this day, a lot of those friendships are still there. Uh, George Faber, Ted Reasoner, uh, Steve Longfellow, Ty Beffert. Phil Boris was our uh, freshman student manager, so a lot of great connections, a lot of friendships made that have lasted for a lifetime. Yeah, we just lost Chuck Bavis this last year, um, which was uh... – which was sad, but you mentioned him and his uh, his role in that team and and a big guy playing the center position and everything. So, so your uh, your time at Purdue uh, wraps up, and uh, you know, as you mentioned, Purdue basketball has arrived. Mackey Arena is in place. The program's rolling along, and so talk to us about uh, life after Purdue for you. Well, life after Purdue uh, <clears throat> at that time there were no European leagues. And uh, just amateur basketball around around the state. So I played amateur basketball for about uh, seven years at the Dearborn Gym League in Indianapolis. That was one of the top uh, amateur basketball leagues in, in the city, part of the state. Uh, I taught school for three years and also was assistant basketball coach at Washington High School, where I graduated from. Uh, after that, I went and worked with the Purdue Cooperative Extension Service. I was a uh, county agent for 4-H, and during that time, uh, for 16 years, while I, at, while I was a county agent, I would do uh, basketball clinics during spring vacations at several locations in Indianapolis for both uh, boys and girls. I would get a lot of donated materials from uh, college teams as well as NBA teams, and that was one of the things, that was one of the best things I did as far as giving back uh, to young people here in the city. I'd never charge for the clinic. It was always free during spring break when a lot of kids may not have had anything to do. So I did that for 16 years. After that, I went to uh, the uh, Indianapolis Parks Department where I was recreation administrator. Uh, one of the things I did there was get addresses on, on the buildings because someone pointed out if there was ever a 9-11 run and they asked what the address was, people would know because there were no members on the building. Oh, wow. So I got that done. <laughs> there you and, go. And uh, we also made all the recreation facilities uh, safe place sites. So if a kid was in trouble, they could go to any of our centers as a safe place. Uh, then after that, I went to the 
Indiana Youth Institute where I was involved with uh, a youth think tank and I was community services director for the state of Indiana. And then after that, I went to Central Indiana Community Foundation where I was a program and grant officer for the foundation. And during that time, I started an initiative called Creating Greater Awareness. And that was an attempt to bring the spotlight and give a voice to what I call the invisible communities. So for several years, I did programs with the uh, Asian community, African community, uh, West Indian community, uh, Native American community or American Indian, uh, Eastern Central Europeans, and uh, Middle East communities, as well as the LGBTQ community and uh, children or refugees and immigrants. And I found that uh, very fulfilling, an opportunity to give back to what I, again, the invisible communities, give a voice to them so that they could share uh, some of their challenges and successes here in the greater Indianapolis area. And you... Then I went to the mayor's office and worked in the Office of International and Cultural Affairs. And after that, I worked with the uh, Immigrant Welcome Center, and we started an initiative called Welcoming uh, Indianapolis which looked to build bridges between uh, newcomer communities with the older residents in terms of how do you build bridges between immigrants and individuals who have been living in their community for a long time. And I've always been in getting back, and over the years I probably have been on, I've been on numerous boards and different volunteer organizations here in town, and it's something I've always felt, uh, something I've really felt dear about, and that's giving back to the community through volunteer service. Yeah, I was going to bring and, that. And, I'm, well, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, we've talked before, and I've I've said this to somebody. I said Ralph Taylor sits on more boards than anybody I've ever I've ever met, and <laughs> it's very. I think it's it's such admirable work. Um, a lot of those stops that you talked about and helping so many segments of our society. Um, do you where did that come from? Do, is there something in your upbringing that you can like look back on and say, maybe that's where that seed was planted or where do you think that kind of sense of community, um, you know, where did you get that part of it, of yourself? Do you think? Well, I think it started in, uh, when I was in, uh, junior high school and, uh, the junior high had grades once rate. So one of the first things I got to do and clear might remember this, uh, was serving on the uh, school safety patrol. And school safety patrol, you're in charge of ensuring uh, your fellow students' safety going to and from school, making sure they crossed at the crosswalk and uh, did not get hit by cars. And then one of my seventh grade teachers asked, uh, would I be interested, along with one of my classmates, to help install tile flooring in uh, one of his uh, church facilities? So we did that, and I always felt giving back just gives you an opportunity to learn so much, and uh, it's just really leaves you feeling good at the end of the day because you're not doing it for pay, you're doing it because you want to, and it just opens up a whole new world to you in, in terms of what you're able to see. And, you know, I was one of the first uh, male volunteers for Planned Parenthood, and uh, that was an interesting uh, journey. <laughs> I uh, bet. Yeah, I bet. yeah, that was very interesting hearing young men talk about how they learned about the birds and bees, complete bad information from their uh, fathers. And uh, Ima- but, yeah. imagine that men, men screwing things up, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but I also got to uh, diversify my interests. I got to serve on the uh, Arts Council of Indianapolis. Uh, I got to serve on the uh, uh, Purdue Athletic uh, 
advisory council. I've got to do that. So I've had a lot of great opportunities in volunteering. It's just really been very fulfilling. Well, and obviously we know you really well being a part of the radio uh, crew and doing the home games with us, uh, helped us out on the road here uh, last year. And then um, also, as you mentioned, um, some work with, in a couple areas, uh, some advisory councils and things like that, and some of your work with the Big Ten, they reach out every year and uh, do some surveys with um, a lot of the African-American student-athletes throughout the Big Ten and throughout our league, and you're always involved uh, with that to help to get the uh, those surveys and things of that nature. Um, so very tied in with uh, with Purdue this day and, and uh, obviously no stranger to boiler ball. So... Uh, Ralph, you have an absolutely fascinating journey. I wanted to ask you here before we uh, before we wrap up our uh, our podcast with you here. We have we ask every guest a final four uh, questions, and these are kind of some off the beaten path um, questions that we ask every guest we have here on the podcast. And so I want to do the final four here with you, um, Ralph Taylor, our guest. First question here on the final four, Ralph, is what is your go to music of choice when you're listening to music? Well, it would have to be old school, Ellie, because that's when people would actually sing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no not argument only, for, no not, argument not for me. Solo, not only solo artists, but also groups like Temptations, Four Tops, Aretha Franklin, Teddy Pendergrass, War. I could go on and on, but I'll stop. <laughs> hey, that's a... You, and the Righteous Brothers. That is, that's uh, some Mount Rushmore type names that you just mentioned there. So nothing wrong with that. And uh, I think you'd get a lot of uh, nodding heads on the fact that uh, they could probably, uh, that was when they actually were singing instead of the auto-tune stuff you hear a lot of now. Absolutely. Uh, Question two here on the Final Four with Ralph Taylor is, what is your favorite book or maybe a good book you've read recently? Uh, My favorite book of all time was Bury Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by D. Brown. Oh, wow. Absolutely. That is very cool. Very cool. Um, third question on the final four. If you could wave a wand and do any profession starting tomorrow, what would that be? Uh, I would be the second coming of Teddy Pendergrass and have women-only concerts. <laughs> that might be. That's in the top five of the best answers we've ever had for that. That and, so, and for anybody who don't know who Teddy Pendergrass is, Ian Cleary, I would tell them, go to YouTube and type in Teddy Pendergrass, and they would understand. And Teddy's a Philadelphia native, is that right? Yes. Yeah, and he we we just lost him probably four or five years ago, but um, yeah, tremendous tremendous musical talent. And uh, would he would you say he's kind of your the at the top of your list? Well, he and uh, Luther Vandross and uh, Eddie Kendrick and Marvin Gaye, I'll stop with those three. There you go. There you go. Those are are, are bad ones. Yeah, those aren't bad. Those are not bad. (laughs) Okay, final question here on the Final Four, and that is, what is one thing that no one or not many people know about Ralph Taylor? Oh. A little-known fact. Well, no, in fact, you know, uh, Billy Keller is my lifelong friend, and we won a state championship together. But a little known fact is that on that 65 state championship team, uh, he and Eddie Bott were the guards, and the leading assist person on that team was me, the center. <laughs> that doesn't happen very often, a center leading uh, the team no. in assists. <laughs> 
No. And now, now is that something you remind those guys about when you talk? Uh, I, I try not to go there. I don't want to embarrass them. <laughs> so I talk, I, I keep in touch with Billy pretty, pretty frequently. He's uh, full time down in Florida now. Is that right? Uh, I split time between Florida and Bloomington, Indiana, which okay. I don't know why, but Billy was actually born in Bloomington. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. I know he spends a lot of time down in Florida now, and obviously he, when he does get back, sometimes he'll we'll get him to Mackey for games and still t- keeps in touch with us on a regular basis. So always good to hear from him and always get a, good to hear from our former players. And, and Ralph, I want to tell you so much. I've, I've enjoyed so much of the history here, uh, the Indianapolis history, the Indianapolis basketball history, and then the history here at Purdue. I always find that stuff fascinating. Um, and I, and you were around for some really high water marks at some of the places you've been, uh, Washington high school. And then obviously here at Purdue. And, uh, just want to, uh, thank you for taking time to share some of those stories with us and join us here on the podcast. Well, thanks Ian. Can I have one more thing? Absolutely. Well, you know, you asked me about my journey since leaving Purdue. Well, I think, uh, you know, sometimes in life they say after you've done so many things, you really can't do anything to top what you've already done. But I must say that uh, having the opportunity for the last 14 years to work with the legendary Hall of Famer broadcaster, the Clears, that's, that's been just a really great joy for me to work with Clears. He's a sane individual, and I just, you know, think the world of him. And they're not saying that just because he's doing the podcast with us. I say that in all sincerity. I want to thank Ralph because I really enjoyed his company. That's very cool. Very cool. Well, Ralph, uh, thanks again. Appreciate you taking time. It's always, uh, like I said, always good to, to kind of get those moments in Purdue basketball history, and uh, we appreciate you joining us here on the Boilerball Podcast. Okay, my pleasure. And please, you keep exercising, my friend. I will, pal. Okay, good. All right, that was episode 65 here on the podcast. We want to thank uh, everybody for listening. Um, and as always, if you have any feedback, it's boilerballpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, I remind all of our listeners to be curious, be informed, and be well. Mm-hmm.